Hey, hello there. It's good to be here. Actually, it's good to be anywhere. This is H. Lee, a.k.a. Harris Insler. And you are listening to TGMBH. These ghosts must be heard. A podcast that shares stories and interviews with people who have suffered a loss due to OUD and to others who might be impacted by OUD, opioid use disease. My guest for today is Charla Okikio. Welcome, Charla. Hi, thanks for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. We kind of know each other from our emails and texts and story that you gave me from my website. Yes, this discussion has been a, a long time coming. Yes, definitely. This is going to be a good one. So first, just give me a little background about you and your family kind of neighborhood. I was, well, born in Illinois, but I came to the West as a young child, um, Idaho and Utah, and that's where I was raised. So then I met my first husband. We got pregnant right away, had a beautiful baby, Cassidy, and moved to Alabama when she was a year old. Cassidy grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, really, from the time she was a year till she was uh, 18. We lived in a middle class, probably even considered upper middle class after law school for her dad. So we went out to Birmingham, Alabama for him to go to law school. He was from Alabama, so he had family there. So it seemed kind of like the place to go. Yeah, babysitters, right? Yes, grandma (laughs) and grandpa. That was good. It's funny because we were ready to go to Connecticut. He had been accepted to Quinnipiac. We had everything booked. We had an apartment. We had the U-Haul booked. We had flights. And then he got accepted to his first choice law school off of their waiting list at the last second. So we changed everything and we ended up going to Birmingham. Once he graduated from law school, we were doing quite well. We lived in a suburb of Birmingham called Vestavia Hills. And that's where Cassidy was raised. You know, it was this polite Southern (laughs) society. And I wasn't from that world. So it took a little much for me to get used to. (laughs) Roll Tide. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) So yeah, that was always the question. Who do you go for? Right. You know, either Alabama or Auburn, and I never had an answer. I'm like, I don't care what you- <laughs> about football. <laughs> Cassidy kind of had this charmed life, really. I mean, you know, as far as she never wanted for anything monetarily. We we had a, a nice home. We, we traveled quite a bit. We gave her every opportunity that we could, and uh, she was our only child. Just a little bit about Cassidy. You know, traits that stand out. I mean, even as a very, very young child, she was just this bright light, you know, she just, she lit up the room and no matter who she was in front of, it was like, she was the center of attention, not because she necessarily craved it, but because everyone gravitated towards her presence and her energy. She was intense in every aspect for better, for worse. Yeah, breakfast and sweaty bodies everywhere. Hands in the air like we don't care. 
Cause we're gonna have so much fun now But somebody here about to get some now From a very young age, she liked to perform. Uh, she was precocious. She was wickedly smart, so intelligent. She spoke early, she walked early, she did everything early. She was beautiful, talented. Can't you see it's we who hold the night? Can't you see it's we who build our life and we can't stop? Actually quite hilarious. Her sense of humor always had me in stitches. You know what to say about witty people? They're the smartest people in the world. It's true. People used to say that she was an old soul. And I really believed that about her. From the time, from the minute she was born, she seemed like she'd been around the block a while. <sighs> Maybe in another life. That, yeah, I always felt like she was older than me in some ways. <laughs> you know, like just her, her understanding of stuff, like the universe in a way. She was a curious thinker. She just had a zest for life, for all of it. Do you have any stories about some of these traits when she was young? One of the earliest memories of her I have was, I'm an actor and I was doing a play at the time when she was about two and a half. I would take her to the theater with me and we would kind of be hanging by the backstage door and she would entertain all of the actors that were there by standing on the top of the stairs and reciting Shakespeare. <laughs> she had learned, Womeo, Womeo, what fault thou Womeo? And she couldn't say her R's very well. <laughs> Womeo. Womeo, Womeo, what fault thou Womeo? Normally she would be watching Barney, but every so often she would gravitate towards a film like Lady Jane. I don't know if you remember that film from. <laughs> It was really dark about British royalty and <laughs> she loved that kind of stuff. So yeah, always, always the performer. She used to love to, to get in front of the camera. We had a big old camcorder, you know, back in the day. I had one too. Yeah, it was gigantic. We took it to Disney World with us. <laughs> you feel like you're on a news crew. Yeah. She loved for us to just videotape her doing whatever. She'd be singing a song or lip syncing to something. We would just interview her. That if you don't eat broccoli, then you will die. At least I think, please. I usually eat broccoli. Okay. You know, I hate it. Is that right? No, it is not right. It is not correct. It is incorrect. Why is it incorrect? Because everybody has to die at a point of time. She said, the, the truth is we're all going to die at a certain point of time. And it was kind of like this precursor of that lesson for me to remind myself that this is inevitable. Yes, we're all going to die at a certain point of time. Why get hung up on, on these little things in life? You know, why, why worry about broccoli? And she was about six, right? She was six. Wow. That same evening when we just were had her on video, uh, her dad would ask her different questions and he was asking her about the election and she was talking about Al Gore and <laughs> George Bush and pro-choice. <laughs> in, in the way her little mind could understand, but she didn't like the idea that George Bush was trying to tell women what they could do with their bodies. A, a feminist in the making. She really oh. was. Okay, what would you say was her favorite activity growing up? Hands down, her favorite was theater. She loved to do musical theater in particular. And I got it, her involved in that at an early age just because I had access to a lot of performance groups. 
she lit up when she was on stage. She was in her element. How about when you took her to New York? Oh my gosh, we loved to, oh, she loved to travel. That, that Next to being on stage, traveling was her number one thing. We went to New York multiple times. We would go to Broadway shows. I think she just loved feeling like she was experiencing stuff that not everybody got to experience. Especially if you're in Mobile. No, not Mobile, Birmingham, sorry. Birmingham. Yeah, and so we would take these wonderful trips and see as many Broadway shows as we could and go to Sardi's and have French onion soup after. And she came to life when we were, when we were in New York. What would make Cassidy laugh? <laughs> Making other people feel uncomfortable. <laughs> hey, everyone. Happy New Year Day. So, 2008. It's been real, and it's been fun, but it hasn't been real fun. No, I'm kidding. It's been a blast. But 2009, it should be great, If but we got to make it great. So here is what I predict for 2009. I predict that we will make a machine where man can fly. And I'm not talking about an airplane, no. Like wings that you can actually fly with, like, you know. I predict that, well, at least within this presidential period, I predict that weed will be legalized. I also predict that Romanian midgets will roam the earth freely. You know, I don't know. I think that would be a good year, just that, being able to fly weed legalized Romanian midgets. I mean, doesn't get much better. What do you think was her future goal or ambition? Well, she wanted to be an actor. I think she wanted, well, I think more importantly, she wanted to be famous, I think. Wow. Which she was probably in it for the wrong reasons. I tell my students now, if you're in it for fame, you might as well just turn the other way. I think she saw for herself like some big future, either being on stage or on camera or just like some big life. That's how these superstars get there because they have that drive, that ambition. Unfortunately, she kind of found her little bit of fame after she died. When do you think she first interacted with any kind of drug? From what I gathered, and most a lot of this information came after she was in recovery for a little while and stuff like that. So at the time, I think we were a little bit in the dark about some of this. I think when she was about 12, 13-ish, like middle school, is when I think that she started to experiment with friends by drinking. And then, of course, they would just push boundaries and kind of, you know, she was the one who, she always lived life as big as she could. And she went to the extreme. The other friends that she had that she was maybe drinking with, they were happy to stick with that. But she always wanted the next thing. It was like, I've got to do this big. There was one other friend that she had, I think, and they, they both had some anxiety and depression issues, I know. And they just, they loved the way that the substances made them feel. For Cassidy in particular, it just calmed her, I think. And so I think she had the, in her mind that there was always going to be something that could do it better than what she had right then.
that escalated after the, the drinking, I think it escalated into, well, let's see if this parent has any medicine in their medicine cabinet. That quickly became, I think, her, her substance of choice in any pill that she could find. Did you were aware of it then or no? No, we were not. Being blind to this, did the drugs affect her in any way? She would do it when they were doing a sleepover, when she'd okay. be sleeping over at her friend's. I'd know that the next day she would be really tired and I'd think oh, they were up all night. <laughs> you, know, you know, kids will be kids. She just didn't get any sleep. So at that point, I mean, that was so early on, we could easily dismiss any behavior at that point. Now it got a lot more difficult later, the more serious the substances became. So basically at that point, she really wasn't affected that much, any aspects like in school? Or she, no, know. I mean, school was always difficult for her not that it was hard academically, but she always had a hard time sort of fitting the mold at school. She just never quite had that wonderful, amazing teacher who really understood her, I don't think, much younger when she was in, I think, third grade. Her teacher calls us in. She thinks she's got some kind of special needs or something, like she's not quite up to speed. And we're like, no, she's actually really smart. <laughs> so they did this battery of tests on her. Well, come to find out, she's as, she, well, I was going to say she's as normal as can be, but really she was above average, way above average. Her IQ was kind of like off the charts. She scored really well on all these aptitude tests. She maybe had a little attention deficit, you know, that was the diagnosis of the day because this was in the, you know. It's the same thing with, with my son, yeah. Zach. Right. I mean, he just didn't want to sit. You know, he had an, a very active mind too. My daughter was more like Cassidy in that way. She was like off the charts. You know, he didn't get those scores, but he, he was okay. And he was just, maybe he had this thing where he couldn't measure up to Rachel. I don't know, my daughter. We found with the ADD, he was antsy. Mm -hmm. So we took him to a neurologist and all that whole deal. He did it for two years. I gave him Adderall or the other one, I don't even remember. And, you know, I just figured out the teacher should deal and try and figure out how to work with him. Because these kids, they're different learners. They, they don't do well sitting in a desk and, and just absorbing all this material that the teacher is spitting out and expected to put it on a test later. It's like, no, let's find out ways to use that. If they're a kinesthetic learner, well, let's figure out how to teach that. It's just too difficult, I guess, when you have that many kids in a classroom. Especially when the teacher is, you know, in his late 50s. So Cassidy did struggle in school to that degree. I never felt like she reached her potential academically. How did this circumstance with Cassidy, how did it affect you and the family? By the time she was 15, that's the first time she had tried heroin. I think in that year of her life, that sort of 15th birthday-ish, that's when things started to feel really chaotic at home. Her behavior was starting to get worse and worse. She was kind of just dropping off the radar when it came to schoolwork. That, that was so unimportant to her at that point. And it was all about just finding this next feeling of euphoria and taking away all the crap that was going on in her mind. Before she got up to age 15, did you seek you know, any psychological counseling or anything? We did, to go back a little bit about the, the time that she was probably drinking and, and kind of experimenting with pills, we did find out she had been cutting. One of her friends um, reached out to me and said, I think you need to talk to Cassidy. We're really worried about her. I opened up that conversation one time and she just 
tears were pouring and she pulls her sleeves up and shows me just these, just both arms were just cut up. I felt so much for her. And I knew that that was just an outward show of all this stuff that was going on inside. I didn't think it was a suicide attempt because I knew enough to know just from my own background, psychologically and all that kind of stuff. I knew that it was that's what she was trying to cope. That was a coping mechanism that had worked for her for a little while and nobody knew about it until they did. And now it was like the cat was out of the bag. So she did open up to me and say, you know, she felt depressed. She kind of wanted to harm herself. We had been talking to her pediatrician about the attention stuff uh, before that and kind of trying to get a handle on that. And so she had introduced us to a, a psychologist, a therapist that Cassidy had had access to to help with the school stuff, really. But um, once this happened, we got her right into that psychologist. And and the psychologist said, after talking to Cassidy by herself, she said, I think we need to consider a short-term psychiatric stay in the juvenile psychiatric hospital. When I kind of presented it to Cassidy, she she wanted to go. I I think to her, she felt like it was going to be this controlled space where she would be safe for a little while from herself. Just a local hospital, they had a pretty good juvenile uh, wing and she stayed there for about a week, learned some skills and then got into an intensive outpatient program after that. We take her every day after school or three days a week, I think after school stay there for several hours those days and and get group therapy and some individual stuff too. So that seemed to be very helpful. But I think she always struggled, even from before that age, she, as a four-year-old, she was showing some signs of like OCD-like behaviors and some anxiety stuff that we always, there were always those little red flags that would come up in her childhood. And we just kind of, I think we didn't know what to do with it. I mean, we we did take her to a, a play therapist when she was four because we were like, we don't want to miss the boat here. We don't want to just sure. ignore something that could be much bigger. Home life was a little chaotic at that point too. Her dad and I divorced when she was eight and then we remarried again. There was some tumultuous stuff in the home. It, it just felt a little chaotic at times. Imagine you get divorced and you're back with the same person. What's going on in her head? I mean, this is a lot for an eight-year-old. Yeah, it is a lot. We were always very aware of any psychological issues that were going on with her. And I truly believe that her anxiety and her depression really led her to self-medicate. And there's no question about it in my mind. I was actually going to ask you about that, but I kind of knew that's where yeah. you were heading. So by the time she found more substances that worked quicker and helped her to feel better, her life became about, I think, seeking that. And then it would be, she'd have these addictions to these bad relationships, these boyfriends. And, you know, she it was just always a mess in her teens. Mm-hmm. So when we found out that she had been doing heroin... That's when everything, it, it felt like the cat was out of the bag and we didn't, we didn't know exactly what to do. And yes, I, oh my goodness, my work, her grandparents, I mean, yeah, everyone kind of knew that stuff was going on. I don't, I don't know if they all knew the extent, but it affected all of our lives. You know, her dad was missing work. I was missing work to, to attend to 
crises and major catastrophes that were happening in Cassidy's life. Um, I would always get calls from the nurse at school, just constantly. Cassidy's back in the nurse's office. She says she's got a migraine, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like just thing after thing. So the level of care that that she was requiring at that point made it difficult to just sort of have a normal life. Did she go to college? No, she got accepted. She thought she was going to. And then I think even she realized that she needed to get a handle on this issue for herself because she knew that she, I mean, she'd been in rehab. Once we found out about the heroin, we put her in rehab, tried to do everything we could. We tried every tool we could figure out just to help her because she seemed to really want help. She didn't want to be stuck in that muck. We even sent her to a long-term treatment facility down in Southern Utah for nine months. They, they dealt with more than just substance use disorder. They were dealing with girls who had all kinds of different issues. You know, they, they were trying to really get to the core of what was happening rather than just treat the substance issues. It's like, no, they, they abuse drugs because of these other things. Let's figure all that out. And but they you know tried. What? They tried. But I don't think the knowledge was there yet about how heroin changes the brain yeah. to the point Usually they say that your brain forms, I think females are younger, maybe when you're 22, males around 25. So imagine you don't know what you're doing when you're a kid. You don't know if you have any proclivities for addiction mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And that's where the problem lies. Absolutely. As soon as you introduce that drug into that developing brain, it it almost feels like you just don't stand a chance. You're right. That's how I've always felt with her after we found out about it. It was like so unfair because, well, what do we do now? The damage was done. Yes. (sighs) Incredibly frustrating. We know the 10% rule is that 10% of addicts, especially when they become addicts at a young age, they're going to make it. 90% won't. Yep. So we knew the odds were against her as far as long-term recovery. You know, I always look at her time being in that treatment center and, and how healthy she was as just her, that was her remission. She, she was in remission at that point. She had a, a couple of good months or, you know, a good year there. And I'm grateful for that. So grateful. We had hope. I had hope when I found out what was going on, but it wasn't a strong hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know. What I knew about addicts yeah. was what I knew growing up in the Bronx, because it happened somewhere else. It didn't happen in my neighborhood. Uh, you know, it's the yeah. poor neighborhoods, people yeah. of color. Now that line is blurred. People of any color, any age, any demographic. So yeah. we know that. Absolutely. How did you find out that she passed? So to set up a little bit about the years, well, we weren't living in the same state when she died. She and I had moved out to California together when she was 18. And this is when I divorced her dad for the last time. (laughs) This was the final divorce. She and I went to LA, did the whole Hollywood thing for a little while. She had an agent out there, as did I, and she was modeling and auditioning and, you know, things were starting to look up again. And she promised herself when she went to California that she wouldn't do heroin anymore. She said, heroin is off limits because, you know, we make rules for ourselves when we have substance use disorder. And uh, it didn't take long before she met some guy out there, another toxic relationship that introduced her to her next drug of choice, which was meth. And in her mind, it was like, I'm not doing heroin. And then also she was just doing any other party drugs she could find at that point. 
so she kind of fell off the deep end again. And my relationship with her got pretty strained at that point. I was kind of done. You know, I can't support this anymore. I can't pay your rent and say, this is okay. Like (laughs) you've got to either try to get better and I'll help you with that. Or you need to just not be around me. At some point in there, her dad offered to have her come back to Birmingham again. She was still covered on his insurance. And we thought if things were in network, it might be a little bit easier to get treatment within network things. So she went back to Birmingham to be close to him. And then of course, you know, the roller coaster up and down of her, you know, relapse after relapse. And then she would do okay for a month or two. And then she'd just fall off the tracks. When that was happening, I met my now husband in LA and we moved to Utah together. So I'm in Utah. She's in Birmingham. She's had ups and downs. I'm not really sure how she's doing. We, Our relationship feels like it's starting to heal a little bit because I've been able to kind of keep boundaries for myself and not get sucked into the unhealthy behaviors. You know, I've been I, like, listen, I'm here for you and I want to talk to you and I want you in my life. And I can't fix every crisis that you have at three o'clock in the morning. So, so I had started to turn my ringer off, all my sound off on my phone when I would go to sleep because this had been an issue. She'd call in the middle of the night with some huge thing. This one day I was teaching a private student and I noticed my, my phone was getting a call from her. And I thought, oh, I, well, obviously I can't get it now, but I, I told myself I'll call her tonight. I never called her that night. I kept thinking, well, I'll just do it tomorrow. Part of me was like, I don't know if this is going to be a fun conversation or if she's doing okay or whatever. So I I put it off and I thought I'll do it tomorrow. Well, went to sleep, woke up the next morning, look over at my phone and I have probably 25 missed phone calls from her dad start to shuffle through these text messages from him when he can't get in touch with me. It started at about three o'clock in the morning. I open up a text from him and I see the beginning of what I knew instinctively he was telling me that she died. And I hit redial as quick as I can. And I get on the phone with him and he just said, she's gone. It happened. She died. And I thought he was, I, I didn't believe him at first. I mean, I was kind of like that awestruck, <laughs> what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then finally, yeah. when he, he said, she, she overdosed. And it just, you know, it hits you like a big, fat gut punch. I couldn't stand up. I collapsed to the floor and I just, like the wind just left my body. I just had nothing left. And, you know, once I kind of processed it, I came back upstairs and my husband said, he knew from the look on my face that something big had happened. And I was in tears and he said, he said, it's Cassidy, right? And I said, yeah. I don't know if you, the last time you spoke to her was maybe a day or two before or? Probably, I think, you know, we had been in touch that previous week uh, through text and Facebook messenger because that was the election. Oh. And we were talking back and forth and just, you know, commiserating that was the, the Trump election. But I think the last time I actually spoke on the phone with her was probably a week prior, just a normal phone call. You could say anything to Cassidy right now. 
what would it be? <sighs> that I'm sorry that we didn't do more for her, that we didn't, couldn't save her. Again, we did the best we could, and I've, I've really tried to forgive myself, but I'd want her to know just, you know, that it wasn't all her fault. We created her and, and we brought her into a, a family that may not have been the best all the time. We loved her. We always loved her. And I hope that she knew that. I think she did. She didn't grow up wanting to become a heroin addict. No, nobody grows up wanting to become a heroin girl, addict. A wonderful adolescent who had a health problem. She was sick. Exactly. When I got the news that gut punch came, I literally had to go to the bathroom. That was, I was just felt like, I, I had a bad feeling because they just told me that he was transferred to Mass General. I had a really bad feeling. Wish I was wrong. And then I had to call my wife, my daughter, and we just, I must have made the five hour trip in three. Wow. I was just a madman. But you know what? He didn't grow up wanting to be a heroin addict. Nobody wants, that's not their life goal. No. <laughs> I mean, who would want that for themselves? It's a horrible way to live. That's why we're here. Yeah. Did you feel like when you knew that she was using heroin and other like meth, did you share that with everybody? There was a very small circle of people that knew. When she was 15, 16, when, about the time we put her in long-term treatment and we were in Birmingham, I did talk to my, I guess she would be my boss. I worked for a nonprofit organization. I was an artistic director and the executive director it kind of was my boss. And so, and she was a friend. So I confided in her in addition to an, one other coworker because I wanted them to know what was happening. I, I didn't want to have to make up excuses anymore for the fact that Cassie was sick <laughs> in quotation marks, you know, that I had to go attend to something. It was like, no, let's just, let's tell the truth here. And then of course, family knew, our family knew, but it was hard to get to that point because, and, and even still, I think I still probably glossed over things. I made it maybe not sound as bad as it was. So in other words, you felt the stigma. Absolutely, we felt the stigma. And, and I know that, that that just drives that. It's like it feeds that disease. You know, substance use disorder, when, when you throw that stigma in there, it's like it just blossoms. It reaches its full potential because in stigma, we want to hide and lie. The shame makes them feel even worse about themselves, which is going to make them want to use again. It's just a horrible cycle. When she died at that point, she's 22 now. Did you still, did you tell people now at that point what happened yet? We wanted to shout it from the rooftops. Yeah. In fact, in her obituary, her dad wrote the obituary that night. The police showed up at his door at three o'clock in the morning and they told him what had happened. And he couldn't sleep, of course. He was trying to get a hold of me all, all night. He couldn't sleep and he just sat down and started writing her obituary. And that's what he sent to me on the text message that morning. He said, is this okay? And it was perfect. The obituary was perfect. It honored who she was as a human. And it told the truth about what she had been dealing with for all those years. And we weren't going to sugarcoat anything. We felt like it was really important to say, 
hey, we're, this is not going to be another obituary where it's like, oh, they passed peacefully last night. Right. No, they didn't. <laughs> they had been struggling. If, if they had died of cancer, we would have said they'd been suffering from cancer for a very long time. And we're so relieved that they finally don't have to be in pain anymore exactly. or whatever. That's but, the reality of it. Cassidy struggled with addiction. Her addiction finally won. She died of a heroin overdose in the early morning hours of November 11th, 2016. We write this not to dishonor her memory, but to shine some bright light on an illness that has taken the lives of far too many. If we allow shame, guilt, or embarrassment to cause this illness to become a dark family secret hiding in the shadows, everyone loses. Do you think if you didn't feel that stigma in the beginning, do you think anything might have changed? I like to think that it would. I have no idea. It's hard. You know, hindsight's so hard. But I do believe that if the stigma wasn't so strong for any mental illness. That's true. Right? In reality, even her beginning anxiety issues and depression, the cutting and all that, there was a stigma around all of that. Yes. You know, I see my four-year-old child having some OCD-like behaviors and I'm worried and thinking, I, I don't want to tell other people about this. This is embarrassing. You know, it's like, we, and we didn't have the right people to go to. The doctors didn't know what to do. In general, if mental illness and, and things like substance use disorder had no stigma attached and we treated it all the same way we do with someone who has diabetes or cancer or whatever, maybe we could get these people that really need help the help early before it's too late, before they've actually tried the substance. Exactly. That remaps their brain, that makes their opiate receptors grow. Even with all you did and all the places you took her, they still couldn't do it. And the thing is, they didn't know. And a lot of them were bogus. You know, I've heard stories of people spending hundreds of thousands of dollars for nothing. It's all very expensive. Yeah. Nothing's covered by insurance or very, very little's covered by insurance. Exactly. And you did try all the resources you could. We did. And they were not sufficient because they didn't know what they were doing yet. Yeah. I think, you know, some things worked a little bit better for Cassidy and kept her in remission a little bit longer than others. But in the long run, the the level of care that it would take for her to remain not using was just almost so unrealistic that I, I didn't, I couldn't see how any young woman would be able to handle that by herself. You know, it's like, she tried Suboxone for a while. The mm. medical component is important, especially for opiate addicts, because yeah. it's like, okay, mm. this is something we can't just have them stop. Their brain is telling them they have to have this. I think Suboxone has its place. Um, I think she did okay when she was on it for a while. And then she just kind of got a little lax and then made a plan to to use heroin again, you know, like stop the Suboxone long enough to, yeah, I, I don't know exactly what happened, but I just know that she didn't stay on it. Same here. And then he went to a psychiatrist, top psychiatrist in the field in Nassau County. And he said, Zach needs to leave this area. We talked about it, he and Zach. And he was doing okay for a while without Suboxone. One night before he got a job, I, I think he just figured, okay, here's my goodbye to heroin the night before. He's supposed to go to work the first day and show up. Like you said, I would say sorry to Zach, but I didn't know as much as I do now. Yeah. I wish we had known more. 
People don't truly understand how difficult it is to be in remission and stay that way. When I learned that my Zach had this disease, I had great hope that he would come out okay. I believed falsely that he was not like the other OUD sufferers. We tried everything that was available. This shows how little I knew about his condition back in 2005. Contrast this experience with Charla's journey through Cassidy's rehabilitation. Charla knew very early that Cassidy's brain was not functioning in a normal way, as if there is a normal way. She didn't wait long to get psychological help for her dear daughter. Charla took so many different steps to intervene with appropriate medical interventions as Cassidy's illness progressed. Some of those steps helped, but sadly, only for short periods of time. Like countless others, I've listened to every approach they took, and for the most part, they ended tragically. Some people stay in remission and live out their lives, but the quote-unquote cure rate is abysmal. Not only should those who are directly impacted, but those who know someone and those who might know someone should get involved on a local and national level to raise awareness and get our government's help in a more robust response. Hell, it's easy to do. Just call your elected leaders of all levels of government and ask, what are you doing to eradicate OUD? This action would be a good start. Yeah, well, and with Cassidy, you were talking about what happened with Zach that night. I think Cassidy had not used for a few months and she and her boyfriend, he had gotten paid. And so they had this idea that he would oh. go pick up some heroin. Let's celebrate. You'd rather he smoke marijuana than doing that. Exactly. But you know, when they got home and it turns out, we found out later from the medical examiner that it was straight fentanyl. There wasn't even a drop of heroin in there. That's the other thing that's out of hand now. Yeah. They have to do something. Anyway, why do you think people believe and uphold this stigma? I don't know. It's a really, that's a great question. And I don't know that I have an answer. I think stigma is created over a long period of time in our society. These are just things, these are ideas that we've come up with from generation to generation. We pass down this idea that if somebody is going to use a drug that's illegal because the legal ones are fine. Alcohol's fine for, you know what I mean? Like, no, yeah, that's probably the number one abused drug in the world. Alcohol. And we have bars and yeah, we drink socially. We have people over and have a glass of wine, which is fine and dandy if you don't have substance use disorder. Exactly. And people don't get that. Yeah. There's just this stigma that's so inherent in our society now, in our culture, that it's going to take a lot of unpacking to do. I think you really hit the nail on the head. I've asked yeah. this question and you said it just will take time. It will take time. Okay, and I think it'll be little things too, like the language changes. And we've already started, instead of calling it addiction, it's substance use disorder. This is a chronic brain disease, you know, just changing the yeah. way we talk about it. Even down to words like clean, being clean, if you're not using. It attaches stigma because the opposite would mean you're dirty. Right. Or you're a junkie. Yeah, absolutely. Those words, they're so stigma inducing. So it's like, well, let's just change the language. And a lot of the addiction policy forum, I think, had created this document about language changes in, in the addiction community to kind of start to help change some of that, um, where, you know, we use words like remission when someone's not using, you know, treat it more like the language of a disease rather than exactly. just a behavior problem.
like you say, changing the language. Do you think people getting out in front and sharing their stories, you know, getting more of that stuff out there? I think the more transparent we are, the better it is for everybody because it, it shows that for those that are still living in the shadows and still hiding, they're not alone. You know, the more people that are standing up and going, hey, me too, that happened. <laughs> my daughter, my son, all of this, it brings it to the forefront where we don't feel so alone and we can go, oh my God, okay. There's a community here. We, we owe it to each other just as humans to understand what each other's going through or to try and at least to listen and to say, I hear you. What kind of things have you done in terms of being an advocate? Done a few things. First of all, I wrote a book about my story of losing Cassidy. With that book became this whole other aspect of speaking about it. So I've been going to treatment centers and schools and things like that to tell Cassidy's story and my story from the family perspective as well, to just share with, with people who are not only suffering, but the ones who are not there yet, high school students who maybe haven't used anything yet, or maybe know somebody who needs help. Again, I want to shout it from the rooftops and say, you're not alone. And maybe someone needs you and maybe you need to ask for help, you know, whatever it is, wherever you fall. What's the name of the book? Name of the book is My New Normal, A Mother's Story of Love and Loss in the Opioid Epidemic. And where can we find it? On Amazon. That's the easiest way to get it. You just search uh, Amazon My New Normal or you can find it under my name. That'd probably be easier. But if you search Charla Bokikio on Amazon, it's, it'll come up. Charla Bokikio. And oh, I have, there's some other exciting news I just found out today. I was contacted by uh, one of the producers at CNBC on that does American Greed, that docuseries. They are doing an opioid piece soon. Uh, they're working on it now and getting interviews. One of the things they're going to be looking at, they're coming to Salt Lake City to look at this recent case of this guy who got life in prison for distributing illegal drugs through the mail. They were gonna be in Salt Lake and she found me and found the book and reached out and they're gonna interview me next week for part of the American Greed docuseries. That is fantastic. And I'm sure their sound will be better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited to kind of tell the story in a, on a more national scale. It's something I've wanted to do with the book is kind of get it out there in a, in a bigger way. It's a, a good story that people are going to relate to. And you might want to mention, you know, somebody doing a podcast about stories. We, I think I might. These ghosts must be heard Uh huh. on Spotify and Amazon. And I think we'll be on Apple too. Okay. <laughs> Shameless plug. So I just wanted to do a couple of just topics. Mm -hmm. I call it my, what do they call it? The, the lightning round. Oh, okay. <laughs> no. What would you tell parents? What would be some warning signs of your child is suffering from OUD? I would say by the time they're already suffering, I think the, the warning signs would be, um, at least for me, looking back, things I maybe missed, you know, that, that Cassidy was tired all the time. She'd be in bed. She was sick a lot. She didn't have much energy or excitement for other things. Like she stopped doing the things that were really important to her before. A lot of attention came uh, on like one particular person. Like for her, it was always a boyfriend that was wrapped up in her drug use. Her whole life became about him. 
just kind of looking at socially looking at our kids and saying, okay, are they well-rounded? Are, are these kids who have a lot of interests and who have a lot of friends or is this kid in their room all the time or disappeared all the time and only, only focusing on one other human? You know, those are some, some warning signs that I think I saw. I think they're wrapped up in their own head, their own little world. Uh-huh. And family became a lot less important to her. The three of us had always been so tight and so close. When those issues started to happen, she really started to alienate us from her life, her parents. You know, it was like we were the enemy now. And everything was our fault. And we were attacking her because we wanted her to do her homework or whatever it was. That maybe it could be typical teenage stuff, but not, you know, (laughs) kind of have to look at it. You don't want to assume that it's just typical teenage stuff. I I think I know where you stand on MAT. I mean, from what I understand of it, I think it has a place in helping these people that are suffering. I haven't done a ton of research on it myself. But anecdotally, what I've heard from, uh, from other people and from some of these um, treatment centers that I've spoken at, some of these therapists have really said that they've seen a huge benefit. Okay, let's take it one step further. Do you know what's going on in Oregon about their drug laws? I've heard some of this. And so tell me specifically what you're talking about. Basically, as I understand, and I actually looked them up, they are making heroin legal in a sense. Right. Any drug. So what they do is say, you have an option. We will give you heroin that is not treated with fentanyl. You will get it. It's free. You have to come here. And I think the other part is you have to go to some sort of intervention type, not therapy, but you have to do something about your problem or else you're going to go to jail. And it's not working well yet because they just started. They don't have enough treatment places to send these people. That's what they're trying to go for, to get more people involved in the treatment aspect. I don't care what they're doing. If you can save a life, who knows if they have configured this damn problem out? You know, it's not the craziest idea. I I think when I first heard about this in Oregon, you know, there's an initial response sometimes that I was like, what, what, what are they doing? But then the more I thought about it, you know, it's like, well, who am I to say that maybe that's not a way to tackle this? You can try it. I mean, yeah, because I mean, what's the harm in it, right? They're still going to get the drugs, no matter if they're getting it from the state or not. And the chances of it being fentanyl and something deadly are (laughs) way higher than, you know. Now, especially now. I think the jury's still out, I guess. But they haven't really got into the full swing of the program. But at least they're keeping these people alive. That, that's my thing. When there's, if you're alive, there's hope. Giving them a chance. They need to, you know, figure it out a little better, but you have to start from somewhere. Yeah, I think the idea is a good one, though. I think it does make a lot of sense to me. Okay, and linked with that, the federal government, you know, has their schedules of different drugs. I think heroin and meth are in, like, the top one. If you take a Schedule One, and make it a Schedule Two kind of makes it legal for people to do research with heroin. Hmm. But the federal government has not changed that. If you declassify it, then the penalty is not as bad. And the thing is, they could do research because the federal funds won't come because of where it's scheduled. Huh. Yeah, I haven't heard about that. That sounds really interesting. That's partly why I'm doing this. intelligent, you're empathetic, you understand a lot, you've been through the ringer, yet you're here 
you're surviving, and of course we always have that part of our heart missing. You know, I wanted to ask you something too. Do you ever get, um, sometimes when I think about Zach and he's not here, I think my chest starts to tighten and I'm like, did this, like, did this really happen? Why am I still here? I, you know, it's weird. It's just that these moments, I don't have them a lot because therapy helps. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't know how I get rid of it, but I do, that feeling. Did that ever happen to you? I do. And it, and it comes at the most unexpected times. You know, I'll be in, I don't know, in a grocery store or just yeah. in my car or, you know, something. It just all of a sudden I'll just be hit with that. It's sort of that gut punching feeling again like where the air gets sucked out of you for a second, at least for me, that's how it is. Yeah. And I just feel like, yeah, it's kind of hard to breathe for a minute. It's like I'm living in a dream now and maybe I'll wake up. Yeah, absolutely. Don't you just wish sometime that you could just have them right back in front of you and give them a big old hug and just say, mm -hmm. oh my God, I'm so sorry. And on that yeah. note, <laughs> yeah, I'll give you a joke. How much is 5Q plus 5Q? 10Q. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it very much. To stay tuned with These Ghosts Must Be Heard, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at These Ghosts Pod. And take a look at our website, VoicesFromTheOpioidCrisis.com, to hear more stories and share your own if you'd like. Our podcast is now streaming on Spotify, Amazon, Apple Music, and coming to more soon. So there's plenty of ways to hear these ghosts. And as Zach used to say, Peace out.